Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Robert M. Price, your friendly neighborhood Bible geek, 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 geek. Just don't know. That is a kind of allegorical interpretation. The uh, ocean depth out of which... Robert M. Bryce, a.k.a. the Bible Geek. I'm uh, happy to be with you again, and uh, I'm going to dive right into some questions from my ever erudite listeners i'm uh, I, I often pause and think how uh, how much i prefer this to classroom teaching which i always enjoyed mind you it was great getting up there like mussolini and uh, pontificating and and gesticulating and doing my stand up routine all in the name of uh, teaching uh, but uh, there were also uh, problems with having to grade stinking papers and i got to the point where i told the students i'm not assigning you a paper why is that? Uh, because none of you know how to do it, and the results would be disastrous. Now, that's not because you're stupid, because it's clear to me you're not. But the problem is you've been unprepared. Uh, that is, uh, those who should have taught you have not done so, and I'm not going to make this a remedial class. So let's just read the textbook and listen to me, and uh, so on and so on. What I would do is to give them reaction papers uh, of one kind or another. Like, uh, if it was a religions of the world class, I'd say, toward the end, uh, I want you to pick one of the religions we've discussed, one to which you do not not belong and tell me in some detail how your life would change if you were to convert to this religion. It doesn't mean you have to seriously consider it. Some people were paranoid about that. It's just, you know, trying to get into somebody else's shoes. Sometimes that was pretty good. Um, not all that often, but some really got into the assignment. Or if I were doing something on the Old Testament, I, I might ask them to write a new psalm or their own set of texts. And commandments or an etiology uh, about uh, like Genesis style about how your parents chose your name. There are all kinds of fun things you can do. In my modern gospels class, you guessed it, I had them write their own gospel. Again, uh, you couldn't expect too much, but it, it, it did force them to interact with the material. So I tried to be creative about it, but I hate grade and stuff. I mean, not just the drudgery. I, I hate the subjectivity element. Um, and I uh, just all kinds of nonsense. Taking attendance, my God, what was it? Oh, we were in first grade or something. So there were a lot of things I didn't like about it. And uh, uh, if I had it to do over again, I guess I'd still do it. But uh, the Bible geek and the human Bible, now this is just what every 
professor wants. Nothing but interested students, people who really are engaged with the material and want to know more about it. And that's you. And I want to express once again my great gratitude for that. Uh, what fun this is. So with that, let's get into some of those questions. The first one is from Sky. She says, uh, I wonder if you would outline the work of Thomas J. J. Altizer, uh, his work, the context of his contribution, his significance, and how it has influenced your own thinking and work. Well, it has influenced me greatly. If you want to see uh, how, uh, you might take a look at my uh, little book of sermons, uh, Preaching Deconstruction, which is based on uh, the death of God theology of Thomas Altizer and the deconstructive criticism of Jacques Derrida. Uh, the two fit neatly hand in hand, and in fact, Altizer was one of the authors in a symposium volume called uh, uh, Deconstruction and Theology. Really, really fascinating stuff. You know, I kind of got converted to, um, to, uh, to the Altizer viewpoint of the death of God theology, oddly enough, by reading uh, Langdon Gilkey's big, thick book against it uh, called uh, Reaping the Whirlwind, I think it was, uh, a very good book in its own right. He's He was trying to, to uh, knock it down. Uh, I I found his, his own – to show you how, what a good job he did presenting it fairly – uh, it was his presentation that made me think, wow, this is really magic. This is really great. Now, I had read um, the Gospel of Christian Atheism in an intro to religion class a few years earlier at Montclair State College uh, under the tutelage of the great Michael S. Kogan. And uh, I found it fascinating even then, though I, I couldn't uh, agree with much of it, but I wrote a paper in that class about his views, and the, particularly the book, The Gospel of Christian Atheism, and I called the paper, No News is Good News. Right, well, uh, of course... Uh, it wasn't like there was no news. It was a gospel. So, and I've read a bunch of his books, though they're, that's the minority of his books at that. And I, uh, I understood, I, I think I pretty well understood the ones I did read, but I began reading some other ones that were, uh, gee boy, uh, obscure to me. It, it uh, presupposed a lot. And uh, with Altizer's background and his unbelievable ocean of knowledge and experience, uh, mystical experience, he had uh, such a fund to draw upon that uh, he uh, he sort of bade the reader to dive into the deep end of the pool, and even as a fan of his, I had to admit with these later books, I just was lost, so I can't really summarize the whole of his thinking, but let me try to simplify and yet not misrepresent the uh, the early Altizer from his uh, books, uh, uh, well, especially the two books, 
um, the gospel of Christian atheism and uh, the sequel to that one, The Descent into Hell. But there's there's several other ones uh, before and after on uh, him and uh, radical theology, a.k.a. the death of God theology that uh, he contributed to or wrote. And uh, so here's basically what I'm well, I just need to give you one other piece of background. I've already said that he had this huge fund to draw upon. Uh, like what? Well, he made it. He was a student of the great uh, phenomenology. Uh, good deed doer. No, just kidding. Uh, the uh, the phenomenology of religion. Uh, scholar Marcia Eliadi, who wrote all these great books, The the Sacred and the Profane, The Eternal Return. Oh, man, what an education you get from just reading his, his books. Well, um, he was much influenced by him. He was, uh, he studied with Tillich, and uh, he had, uh, and, and he was really expert in uh, modern philosophy and literature to the point where he regarded the work of William Blake, uh, Freud, Nietzsche, uh, and uh, many of the uh, the oh Hegel was biggie. Uh, he many of the the uh, philosophers that are often considered to be non-Christian or anti-Christian. He took as virtual prophets. Uh, whose contributions, whose insights had to be taken seriously as sources of theology. Uh, it wasn't like the only proper sources were the writings of people dead for centuries. Uh, he had, um, and, and that goes um, hand in glove with the phenomenology, his own religious experience was of a radical, mystical sort. Uh, he uh, suffered under curses from people uh, that uh, had that kind of skill, voodoo and all that kind of thing. He said that he had been invaded by Satan, uh, and, and he wasn't kidding, and he was not a nut. Uh, that's, uh, I mean, that's one uh, thing you get clear quickly. This is not ranting. Uh, it is a kind of prophetic synthesis of all manner of things that you might have thought were inconsistent with one another, but not necessarily. Well, have And I think because of that uh, many-sourced approach, as well as what he did with it, which I'm about to discuss a little bit, Altizer really must be considered the greatest theologian of his time. Uh, it is such a shame that he uh, was taken from us um, only m months ago. Let's see, he would never have made such a claim, but then the great usually don't. Uh, he... Uh, it, it seems to me like today's so-called theologians are, are really just politicians. Uh, their, their, their real religion is uh, leftist political correctness. I don't necessarily mean simply political liberalism. That's really a whole different kettle of ichthy. Uh, he, he was, many of these people are just in the post-colonialist theology, their feminist theology, etc., you can you don't have to read or liberation theology you don't have to read very long to realize this is uh they they've elevated at least in my reading and I've read plenty of them um 
well, not so much post-colonialists, but uh, that uh, they're they're really sort of proof texting the Bible and and theology and trying to come up with a way to make it useful for their political agenda because politics is their religion and their so-called theology is really a kind of uh, just uh, formulating a worldview based on faith. Uh, often, not really, in my opinion, a sober reading of the relevant facts, but it. Has has become the um, the theology and the religion of of the left. Altizer didn't do that. Um, I think Harvey Cox, with whom he's often bracketed, did. But I found, let me hasten to say, I am and have been for decades a great admirer of Harvey Cox. Also, uh, but he he was a bit more. Well, in fact, he was a professor of applied theology at Harvard. And not pure theology, which I think you can say Altizer was. So what was Altizer's uh, message, his gospel of Christian atheism? Well, he said that uh, the important thing is uh, not that there is no God, because uh, he didn't really think that. He started with, uh, on, well, with a couple of different places, I guess, but he talked about the death of God and based that on the prophet Nietzsche. Uh, and uh, the point of it was that uh, once there was, at least in human experience, a transcendent God who judged the world and also possibly loved it, whatever, but he stood over against a, a world that was alienated from him by human choice. Uh, he's he's very much like Paul Tillich, who said that the the um, the Garden of Eden story attests the fact that we could not be fully human beings without autonomy, and that meant we had to become estranged from the ground of our being, that is, the Creator God. And I would have said the creation stories are myth and so forth, but the basic idea of God as the creator, the one who stands above us and all that. Well, uh, as long as we had not been alienated from God, uh, we we could not be really human. Tillich said that the chapter um, three of Genesis is part of the same narrative as chapter two, the creation of man and the fall of man. Well, they're two phases of the same thing. You haven't finished creating man until the fall because he, he isn't mature. He isn't autonomous, though by being autonomous, he is inherently alienated from the trans from the ground of his being with which he was once in perfect harmony. Uh, that's what Tillich calls theonomy. There is a depth and a ground of, of being, and if um, one is, in, in, in the traditional view of religious enlightenment and piety, you are in harmony with the ground of your being, but you, when you mature, you have to attain autonomy. Now, you can be both autonomous and theonomous, you perceive no uh, tension between the two because you, like um, Kant said, that true piety is duty to God for its own sake, it, to to do the right thing 
for the right reason and not just for some gain or reward you might get. Uh, that is the holy will of God. So yeah, Tillich said the whole uh, European culture during the, the high Middle Ages was theonomous. Uh, people really agreed and believed and, and wanted to do what their religion prescribed. And it did put them in harmony with and reveal the ground of being to them. But because of the uh, the pre-scientific views assumed and taught by the church, a great breach came during the Enlightenment and the Renaissance when um, s s autonomous science was uh, discovered. And um, so autonomous, free-thinking people felt they had to break with religion. Uh, it was teaching them uh, empirical falsehoods, and so autonomy was divorced from theonomy, and um, religion didn't want to uh, close the gap, unless you're talking about demanding surrender from the newly secular rationalist uh, population. No, uh, it, it it made an idol of its myths. It insisted you take them literally, and in fact, they would do you no good if you didn't. Uh, you, you were missing the point. The point of it was to believe these invisible, unverifiable things. That hadn't been the case exactly before, because there had been no reason to doubt that the uh, the biblical picture of the universe was correct. In fact, it had to have been crazy to think otherwise, given what they knew and didn't know about astronomy and so on. Uh, biblical criticism, right? That that uh, suddenly made the Bible unreliable. Uh, you didn't have any trouble believing it when you thought it was straight history, and there was no real problem with miracles occurring in, in your worldview. But once you saw that there were problems, uh, then uh, you uh, were estranged from that too, and uh, and uh, of course, people like Bultmann and Tillich said you can overcome that by deliteralizing or demythologizing or breaking the myths to interpret them rather than simply rejecting them. Um, well. Uh, this is all going on uh, in Altizer's frame of reference. And again, I think the central idea was Nietzsche again. What did he mean? Uh, well, that, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I need to tell you one other thing. Uh, if the fall, quote unquote, of man marked the alienation of humanity from from God, from the ground of its being, it also equally meant the God's transcendence of the world. They're two sides of the same coin. Both are alienation. Uh, the fall of man is the alienation on man's side. The transcendence of God is the, uh, the, uh, the alienation on God's side. Uh, many African religions say that, yes, there was a creator God, but we're no longer in contact with him because somehow he got sick of us or we offended him and uh, he's retreated somewhere. Well, you know, that's the same sort of an insight. So this is important. And uh, let, let's look at uh, Eliade first and then Nietzsche. 
Eliade pointed out, well, actually, I think Hermann Gunkel was probably the first to point this out, that if you read Jewish apocalyptic, and I guess probably other brands of it too, you have the idea that the end site, the end time, will mirror the urzeit, the, the primordial time. The, the time of the end will reflect and even repeat or restore the time of creation. And so Altizer said, if that is the logic of it, and if Jesus was an apocalyptic preacher, the Albert Schweitzer view, which uh, Altizer held to, then wouldn't that mean that when the kingdom of God arrives, as Jesus said it would, that means that we, that humanity will be reunited with its ground, with God, and just as important, God will no longer be in the heavens, but will dwell among men. Uh, now, even to say it that way is mythological, e even to use the term uh, transcendence and alienation. These are distance metaphors, but what else have we got? Um, so we will somehow return to this unity with the divine ground. Now, what is that going to look like? Well, this must happen, and you know, Jesus said it would happen imminently, right, any time. It did, sort of like preterism. In the Gospel of Thomas, what you expect has already arrived, you just don't recognize it. When Jesus, God incarnate, died on the cross, um, he didn't rise from the dead. That's a big mistake. That is a myth that contradicts the whole notion of what the incarnation was about. God died on the cross. This means that, yes, the divine was poured out into humanity and the world. The sacred was poured out into the profane. And the and this was the death of God. Uh, this is why, for Altizer, the resurrection is not so important a notion or myth as the descent into hell, because that bespeaks what really happened, according to the logic of Christian belief, the the inherent uh, genius of it, namely that uh, what we always associated with the notion of God, a, uh, a transcendent being standing over and above us, judging us, and so on, gone. Now the divine has been emptied out into the, the, the world of, quote, hell, unquote, the world of the profane, a uh, world where there is suffering and evil and the presence of Christ, the divine that has been poured into it, is a kind of ghostly radiance, a, a kind of after echo uh, of the once transcendent God. And uh, God's people uh, must shoulder that burden to be the presence of Christ, a caring, compassionate, self-sacrificing presence in the world of suffering. It's, it's as Altizer points out, this is almost exactly like the idea in, in Mahayana Buddhism that, that uh, the bodhisattvas uh, leave the heavenly realm to uh, suffer alongside humanity and so to raise them. And that as a result, one sees that the two opposites in, in uh, 
Theravada Buddhism, uh, namely uh, Nirvana, the state of release and peace and uh, salvation, is the same thing as uh, as samsara, the transient world of suffering and reincarnation. The Mahayana came to see that that once you see that, you won't scorn this world. You just uh, you won't wa- any longer be disappointed by asking too much of it. And the place for the Bodhisattva is within the the world of suffering on behalf of humanity. Very same sort of thing in in Christianity as Altizer understands it and so yeah we 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 shouldn't be surprised that you know well, where is god in all of this he's right in the middle of it uh it's like um in uh, Elie Wiesel's um night uh, he he's he has these jews in in auschwitz where he was by the way uh asking you know where is god in all this, and uh, the the guy's talking to a fellow Jew points to a a hanged man, a Jew, one of many uh, on the gallows, and he says, "Well, there he is, right there." Uh, well, that, that's that's Altizer, that the crucified Christ is God, and as Moltmann says, the crucified God, and he's staying right here where we are. Uh, and uh, so this uh, fits in with Nietzsche because Nietzsche said along a different trajectory, but it converges very well, that God is dead, that uh, we have killed him because uh, our discoveries, our knowledge have made it clear that uh, there was that the God we thought existed, who ruled us, who commanded us, to whom we were responsible never really existed, and so in the culture, God has died. And he says, this means that we recognize that there is no objective standard of truth. Uh, That uh, I like the way he put it. He says, uh, we have to maintain the categories of truth and fiction, uh, even though we know all supposed truth simply is fiction. But we need to keep the category of truth around, lest we come to think that our favorite fictions are the truth. We have to realize that what we live for and stand for is a fiction too. We give that meaning to the world. There is not an objective uh, heavenly realm of forms or bureau of weights and standards that governs what the truth is, what meaning is. There is no God who tells us, "I, I created you, let me tell you what your life means. No, no. Where is meaning? It can only be in the eye of the beholder. No one can tell you what you mean. You must discover it. No one can tell you what reality is about. You must decide. You must create it. Uh, the, The world is a blank canvas. It is up to you to decide uh, what will be painted on it. Uh, The world has no order. We must impose an order. That's why there's so much 
disagreement about ethical matters, right? A lot of them are not very obvious. Look at the never-ending debate about abortion. It just isn't that clear. Uh, and or, or you wouldn't have such arguments. I mean, the, nobody argues that murder is okay, right? Uh, there's, uh, But is this murder? Well, back and forth it goes. Uh, we are trying to impose a grid on a jungle. We're trying to impart meaning to it, and we must create the meaning, and unfortunately, there clashes with people that have created a different one. Uh, and uh, the one who is up to the challenge to do this, who creates and embraces his or her own uh, vision of the world, is, of course, the ubermensch, the superman. Uh, and uh, as I read Altizer, there's a bit less emphasis in him on that aspect of Nietzscheanism. But uh, Altizer himself would count as the mad prophet in Nietzsche's The Gay Science, the guy that shows up in the village in the noonday sun, but with a lit lantern. Uh, and uh, he's, he's saying, I seek God, I seek God. And uh, a crowd gathers around him, starts heckling him, and does, uh, oh, you lose him? Fall out of your pocket or something? And uh, he dashes the lantern to, to the ground and says, I see I've come too soon. A uh, light that uh, comes from a faraway star takes a long time to get to the earth, and I see the news of the death of God has not yet reached the world. Well, it will, uh, and then you'll see that these churches and cathedrals are nothing else but the mausoleums of God, uh, because there simply isn't one. You know, I, I am, as you know, a, a political conservative, and I espouse pretty much traditional values. Uh, but uh, I am quick to to disagree with virtually all other political conservatives uh, who need a uh, a god to supply objective standards. Well, of course, that's no argument, right? I mean, they that's why they cannot entertain the notion of uh, of, of atheism. Right, because oh no, we we must have objective morality, and we do, thanks to God. Well, this is an amazing example of what Francis Schaeffer used to call an upper story leap, where you think you need it, and that's good enough reason to believe it. No, it's not. I mean, I may need money, but I can't just tell myself that I have a lot of you know, millions of bucks in the bank and start writing checks like crazy. They're gonna bounce. Right. Uh, so the fact that you need something doesn't mean you have it. And uh, Nietzsche proclaimed the death of the transcendent God. Uh, Gabriel Vahanian and others were um, not quite, there were like four major death of God theologians, uh, Vahanian, Altizer, uh, Hamilton and uh, Van Buren, William Hamilton and Paul Van Buren, and they had uh, different views, though you can see why they were grouped together, but uh, Vahanian used to say, I, I had the great uh, privilege of, uh, of uh, talking to uh, Vahanian uh, informally at, at some length. He was a teacher of my teacher, Michael Kogan, and I've corresponded with uh, with Altizer, as I think you know, he's written stuff for me. And uh, Vahanian once said that what um, 
that what Altizer says is the cure is what Vahanian himself says is the disease. He's more traditional and believes that uh, God has died in the culture, but that's not good. Altizer says it is good, but they both um, make a great deal of the, the death of God theology. So it's kind of a Nietzschean theology, it seems to me. Uh, and, uh, well, how can that be, you say? Because you just said it was like Mahayana Buddhism, that Christians are to live out the uh, the virtue of uh, karuna, compassion, uh, of, of the bodhisattva. Well, that is Nietzsche in itself. Uh, Nietzsche said the superman is not a dictator. He doesn't despise people. He he has compassion upon them because he he does he is above them. But he looks down and sees their suffering and knows a better way, uh, and tries to communicate it, though he may not find much of a ready response. Think of Plato's allegory of the cave. That's kind of making the same distinction. Well, I could go on and on about uh, the great Altizer uh, and the great Nietzsche and all these people. Uh, they're great, but that's what I retain as the, the important uh, basics of the death of God theology. Thank you for, for asking, Sky. Hey, here's one from Maxwell Fenton. He says, I was wondering about the figure and the term Lucifer in the Bible and elsewhere. I know it was a term used to describe the planet Venus in Greek mythology and uh, often personified as a torch or light-bearing figure. And that's, of course, what Lucifer means in, in Greek, the one who bears the, the lux, the light, carries it. Uh, but how did Lucifer become synonymous with Satan? I know that the term is used as morning star in a statement made uh, uh, let's see, from Isaiah uh, to the king of Babylon in Isaiah 14 when referencing his moral descent. You know, oh, Lucifer, Halal, son of Shahar. Halal was, again, the planet Venus. Um, but the, the Canaanite term, son of Shahar, Shahar was the dawn goddess. Uh, so, yeah, same thing, Venus. And he's... Um, the writer is applying that myth about how the the uh, the morning star, namely the brightest object in, visible in the sky, until the sun comes up and obliterates it, you, you can't even see it anymore. Right until the sun goes down, and then you got the evening star. Well, uh, yeah, so they they called uh, called it the light bearer and. Uh, was Venus, right? And he's uh, and Isaiah is saying that well, that's just like the meteoric rise and fall of the king of Babylon, presumably Belshazzar, uh, that uh, he uh, seemed to be so high and mighty, but look at him now. Uh, and he says it's just like the myth of Halal, the story of Halal, son of Shahar. He got slapped down for his arrogance. Yeah, okay. Uh, let's see. Is this maybe a form of astrological allegory, like the movements of Venus, which descends downward like Satan from heaven? Yeah, that, that's right. That's exactly what I was trying to say. And what about Gnostic movements 
that have worshipped Lucifer as a deity or even consider him separate from Satan. How has this figure become separate from, yet synonymous with, Satan and other religious figures, let alone its astrological origins? Well, uh, it... Uh, I'm I'm not familiar. With, well, I know um, Rudolf Steiner drew a distinction between Satan and Lucifer. I don't really know on what basis others do. Uh, it's I'm not that familiar with modern Gnostic groups that uh, that that ha- that are populate the. Uh, the unseen world with these rival entities, though it's interesting already in the 4th century Gospel of Nicodemus, also known as the Acts of Pilate, when Jesus descends into hell, uh, he uh, trashes the place and lets the Old Testament uh, righteous escape and go to heaven. And there, hell is ruled by Satan and Beelzebul. And uh, I hope I've got this right. I think Beelzebul has dethroned he's, uh, Satan. He's he's taken over, though they work in concert. I, I don't know where they got that. But usually, when you have different names for the same character, it implies that uh, you you have a fusion of two traditional characters that were enough alike in people's reckoning that they decided, well, the two names are the same thing. Uh, I don't quite know how that happened, but it's interesting that even as as late as the book of Revelation, Lucifer, the morning star, uh, didn't necessarily denote Satan. Uh, In fact, there's a, I guess, a couple of centuries after that, we have a Christian bishop and theologian named Lucifer. Uh, We don't have any bishops named Satan, right? And so apparently people did not make the the equation that uh, modern Christians make between Lucifer from Isaiah 14 and and the Satan from Job and... uh, uh, was it First uh, Chronicles and Second Samuel and Zechariah, uh, and some some did because they were trying to find they were trying to take puzzling passages and meld them together into a coherent story, and so if uh, if you can come up with a fall of Satan story by hammering together. Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 and stuff like that. Well, then, uh, if one mentions a guy named Lucifer and another mentions Satan, maybe they're the same guy. Uh, who knows? I, I don't know if we know enough about it. I know there are whole books devoted to the evolution and history of the Satan concept. Um, I think it's like uh, the way the Old Testament Satan, Hasatan, the adversary, a servant of God, uh, gets melded with the Zoroastrian Ahriman, an evil counterpart to God. I think that's probably what happened with Lucifer and Satan also. But it's it's not clear to me. I guess I'm not a Satanologist, uh, though I, I should be. Ah, thanks, Maxwell. Oh, let's see who... Oh, Luther, yes. Uh, not Martin Luther or Lex Luther, but Luther. 
I have a couple of questions from the book of Matthew, specifically from the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, both questions have to do with the rewards. One, several times when saying not to be ostentatious in one's good deeds, Matthew has Jesus say that those who do perform their good deeds in public have received their reward in full. People who give to the needy, who pray in public, who call attention to their fasting, they have all received their reward in full. What does Matthew's Jesus mean for this reward to be? It is simply their, uh, is it simply their re- reputations as good people, or is it meant as something more sinister? That is, they'll get what's coming to them. Now, I never thought of that latter possibility. Uh, but then you have to ask, well, what negative would be coming to them? Uh, and I, I uh, like, is God's judgment for their insincere play acting? Uh, I, I think not. I mean, that would make some sense, except that he says they have received it which makes me think it's the the former possibility that they're really just doing this to inflate and enhance their reputation. Oh, look at that. He's praying at uh, the table at McDonald's. What a pious guy. What a jerk. Uh, Hey, everybody, look at this. I'm uh, praying, and uh, aren't I pious? Come off it. That's why it says go into your inner room or your closet and pray uh, so no one will see you. Don't take the chance that someone will see you because uh, if if they do, there's your temptation. Say, yeah, yeah, I'm pretty religious. I, I'm pretty holy, all right. Probably more holy than you. Like that, okay, suppose that does impress the yokels. Uh, well, you see what's happened. You've gotten good reviews from the crowd, but uh, God sees nothing to uh, to reward there. Whereas if you uh, make sure God alone knows you're praying, he'll see that your uh, your motives are pure and will reward you. What, karmically, like in, in this life, good things will happen to you? It could be. Or uh, as I've usually thought it meant uh, when you go to heaven. Of course, you, you see the problem with this, right? And and I think that may be the next part of your question. Um, uh, let's see. Yeah, yeah. Uh, throughout this section of Matthew, every time I feel Jesus teaching something really ethical, the section always concludes with a statement that the Father will reward the person who performs the good deeds privately. Doesn't the idea of a reward contradict the idea of the good deed in the first place? Uh, yeah, yeah. It seems to me that it's just enlightened self-interest, right? Well, you want to get something out of this, right? Well, you could sell it cheap and just uh, do it in front of other people so they will say, oh, how pious. But that's not much of a reward. Yeah, you'll get that, but it's really worthless. You should uh, make sure God will uh, will see it, and only God. And then you'll get the big reward. Well, what, what the heck? What's the difference? As Zooey Salinger says, and, uh, Fran- and Franny and Zooey, um, uh, Zooey Glass, I should say, in uh, 
uh, Salinger's uh, Franny and Zooey, he says, I, I've never been able to see the difference between a spiritual reward and a material, uh, a, a spiritual treasure and an earthly treasure. They're both uh, treasures. You're, you're counting the coins. Yeah, I, I think uh, that this, uh, th this, somebody didn't think this through, right? It's still just selfishness. Uh, it it must pollute your uh, your uh, unless somebody didn't yeah I say they didn't think it through. The language certainly suggests is like you you can have a better investment this way, but I, I get the impression there's a missing premise here. It, it's like saying if, if you want to do the right thing and to please God, you will uh, shun the uh, claim of other people because it's only going to make you conceited and self-righteous. I, I think that's really the point, but the, but I don't know. Maybe I'm just trying to improve the text, but I think you're right. Uh, and Luther says, and to make this a much bigger question, were there early Christian groups or non-Christian groups in the early Christian era that didn't incorporate a reward into their scheme? It seems to me that the truly moral teaching would be that the good deed is not rewarded either on earth or in some heaven, but rather it is worth doing because of its rightness. Otherwise, you're just acting in the interest of the highest bidder reward-wise. Yes, Luther, that's right. Well, yeah, the uh, Marcion they rejected hell, and they said that the uh, the God who would send people to hell, or who would command uh, military conquest on uh, unbelievers, uh, Jehovah in the Old Testament, wasn't wicked. He wasn't a devil, but uh, he was sort of a more primitive uh, approach, and uh, that the Father of Jesus Christ who was not the creator and did not give the law of Moses, uh, he, uh, this, this God was a God of love and salvation. And uh, through the, the crucifixion of, of Jesus, he had bought the right to adopt all of the creatures uh, of, the, uh, of Jehovah. And uh, they would be adopted as, as the fellow sons and daughters of Jesus. Uh, and uh, I, I'm sorry, brothers and sisters of Jesus, sons and daughters of his father. And Tertullian uh, is, uh, is, is uh, flabbergasted at this. He addresses Marcion, though he was later than Marcion, but he's, he's just, you know, polemically responding to what he's reading in Marcion. He says, uh, look, if this is true and there's no judgment or punishment, then why not uh, plunder and kill and you know, do all kinds of horrible things? Uh, and yet all you have to say is, God forbid, God forbid. And like uh, Tertullian, that is absurdity. And it shows really that uh, Tertullian has the morality of a two-year-old, right? Uh, well, look, uh, in fact, there was there's a similar thing with universalism, modern uh, 18th century, 19th century universalism. Great story. I love this one. Uh, the uh, the uh, great universalist <clears throat> theologian Hosea Ballou <clears throat> Uh, a pretty much uneducated hick, but very intelligent, uh, from uh, up in New Hampshire, 
uh, he's uh, riding along uh, on horseback next to a Baptist preacher, uh, and uh, they're just shooting the breeze and being friendly, even though the Baptists, of course, believed in hellfire and judgment. So they're having a friendly theological debate. And uh, the Baptist says to Baloo, you know, uh, my brother, if I were a universalist, I'd... uh, and didn't believe in hell, I'd just knock you off your horse, beat you up, and steal whatever's in your saddlebags. Uh, and uh, he's trying to say, you know, if there's no no circumstance where you're going to face the music. And, uh, he does, and he doesn't really mean that, but he's saying, why not, on your understanding? And Baloo says, my brother, if you were a universalist, such a thought would never even enter your head. Well, that's, uh, that's the same idea. What are you saying? That, that all that's stopping you is uh, the, the prospect of paying for it in hell? It's ridiculous. Uh, you, you uh, again, like Kant said, you have to not merely act in accordance with uh, with righteousness. Maybe because you're afraid not to, you don't want to go to jail or something like that. No, you have to do the right thing because it's the right thing. It's its own reward. And uh, yeah, I, I think the Marcionites may have been the the only ones who who said that most Gnostics didn't because they wouldn't have gotten that far with the question. They didn't really think that um, salvation was a matter of escaping damnation. It was a matter of escaping dreary reincarnation in this world, and uh, it was superior knowledge of one's origin and destiny that saved. Uh, they And, and, and uh, most Gnostics... Well, apparently there were some libertine Gnostics that felt that uh, as they were above and beyond the Demiurge, whom they identified with Jehovah, that they need not obey his laws. And some apparently did whoop it up uh, and had orgiastic worship. But most, if the Nag Hammadi texts are any guide, were dour ascetics. They were trying to starve out the desires of the flesh, so they they didn't those Gnostics didn't even see it in the terms that that would allow for such a debate. Okay, um, I think uh, I'm gonna. Well, okay, one more. Uh, also from Luther, he says, "I'm reading your inerrant the wind and considering your introductory comments on how little had to change from." its incarnation as your 1981 doctoral dissertation. Uh, and I was surprised at something. I, like, I didn't update it as I thought I would because I decided to read some more more recent um, evangelical writers on inspiration, and I found that really the same debate was still going on. Uh, it relates to young earth creationists' understanding of Noah's Ark, which is on my mind a lot lately, since my very conservative Lutheran mother has been mentioning her semi-recent trips to the creation and the Ark, quote, museums, unquote. Uh, at our family Christmas, my girlfriend, God bless her, even asked some unprompted questions to learn my parents' favorite parts. Uh, answer the animat whoops uh, answer the animatronic patriarchs, which made me think these museums sound like a Chuck E. Cheese without the pizza. <laughs> uh, 
what's the point of that? Uh, maybe that's what the resurrection is going to be like. We all become uh, holograms and dummies. And my mom didn't seem comfortable with the concept of kinds that the Ark Museum apparently makes use of, because after all, you've got to fit a whole lot of species in that boat. Uh, I've only heard of this concept from apologists within the past few years, but there it was on page 27 of Inerrant the Wind. Was this concept of kinds and subsequent microevolution already in use in 1981? Or was this a later development and addition to your book for its 2009 release? Oh no, that goes way back, uh, at least into the time of the neo-evangelicals. I couldn't swear to it, but I think Bernard Ram uh, mentions that in uh, his uh, book, um, The Christian View of Science and Scripture. You're exactly right. They There were way more species than the, the writer of the Noah's Ark story had any idea of. And uh, so if you insist that, well, there really was a guy named Noah, and he really did have this ark with every kind of uh, beast in it. Well, that uh, he'd never have, uh, given the dimensions given in the text, he could never have crammed in two or seven of uh, each uh, species of animals. There's hundreds of millions of them. Uh, how are you going to do that? Well, okay, uh, in his day, maybe evolution had not, or maybe the species differentiation had not progressed so much that uh, there was a dog kind. It was neither Chihuahua or a Great Dane. It was just some basic sort of dog. Uh, and uh, after the flood, there was uh, sp species differentiation by microevolution, that the evolution within a kind uh, that uh, eventually you had Chihuahuas and Great Danes and Dobermans and poodles and all of that uh, and that was evolution all right uh, but you never had any dogs of any kind give birth to something else uh, and that would be macro evolution evolution on a large scale where um, a new species is begotten by an old one but the problem with this is those who those those apologists who say this don't understand what natural selection and evolution mean right uh, there is there are only micro evolutionary changes you you can only carve up the 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 pie into different species in retrospect uh not at the time because they're only teensy little uh, like a uh, you, you've got a, a giraffe uh, you didn't have a gazelle give birth to a long-necked giraffe but some gazelle or deer like animal um its its progeny began to spontaneously have longer necks and the, they ha lived long enough to pass on their genes because they were in the position to get more food than the short necks. So this happened very gradually and eventually you, you start drawing the line. Uh, the uh, birds evolved from, uh, from 
flying dinosaurs or flying reptiles, or whatever they call them nowadays. Uh, and uh, it, it, where do you draw the line? Because the Archaeopteryx was sort of both. And so it's just, uh, at some point, almost arbitrarily, you draw the line. Uh, how do you know? Why do you say an, an ape? Why is a gorilla an ape, not a monkey? Well, uh, apes and monkeys are very similar, but well, what the heck, the uh, monkeys have tails, the apes don't, and there's a few other things. So this kind of nonsense just betrays a total and utter ignorance of what evolution says. Uh, and uh, this goes back, I was hearing this in Sunday school back in the 60s, and I'm sure it goes back at least into the 50s, so that was not a new thing. Uh, Luther, if you haven't read the book that uh, my pal... Ed Swoman and I wrote called uh, uh, Evolving Out of Eden, um, Christian Responses to Evolution. I, I, we deal with a lot of this stuff. I'm sure you'd get a huge kick out of it. Okay, uh, that's it for today. I'll be back with you again, and I'll also try to do uh, pretty quickly now uh, another human Bible. So uh, thanks for being with me again on The Bible Geek, and I'll see you next time, whenever that is, pretty soon, no, no doubt. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.